The Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for forty-six years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name, because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. This is the word of the Lord. This week, I've found myself thinking about the past a bit, taking a little time to revel in those great sunlit memories of long past, allowing myself to revisit some of my most happy times, not unlike returning to an old dog-eared book that you enjoyed in your youth, but which has sat untouched on the shelf for many a long year. Like a great many people, especially white people from the Midwestern United States, a not insignificant portion of my good memories are rooted in the community experience of my time spent at church. I mean, sure, I, I have memories of great personal triumph, the assertion of my own victory over the great challenges of life, graduation, ordination, uh, that one time that I managed a long-distance sticky grenade shot in the original Halo during a dorm room party back in college. But while those memories are brief, sharp moments of joy, EQ spikes of greatness amidst an otherwise flat and level sound, the memories in which I find the most consistent joy, those periods of slow-burning comfort, love, and acceptance, those are the things I always found in church. I can still remember, with astounding clarity, the feeling as a young boy of not more than 11 or 12, sitting down amidst those 
great and towering men of our community for my very first day as a member of the church's sanctuary choir. I can picture in my head with an image quality that would make the greatest photographers of the age weep with frustration, those church pancake breakfasts spent running around the building in a sugar-fueled frenzy along with all the other kids just waiting for someone to careen headfirst into a wall like a perfectly tuned Ferrari inexplicably being driven by a drunken toddler. Those moments Church meetings and Sunday services, Bible studies and bake sales, youth group meetings and quiet nights huddled over the baby grand piano like a child sleeping at the feet of Jesus. These memories feel like warm sunlight on a cool spring afternoon to my heart. They are, at my very core, what church means to me. And I know that many of us who have positive history in the church tend to feel much the same way, whether those memories are of a small Midwestern church in Michigan, a great stone metropolitan sanctuary in New York, a temporarily vacated theater borrowed from some other organization in Arizona, a steel and glass work of art in California, or the oft-rebuilt home of an ancient missionary base in Japan. No matter where those memories started, those of us who grew up safe and secure in the loving arms of Great Mother Church all tend to have memories along similar lines and that feel just as strong. Which is what makes it easy for a lot of us to miss what is just so damn jarring about today's passage. When we read today's passage, whether we read it as we did today from the Gospel of John or take it instead from its briefer presentations in any of the other three Gospels, we tend to receive it as something nowhere near as shattering or deeply disturbing to the community as it really is. When we read today's story, we often hear it like this. Jesus comes to the temple, and there he finds people doing something so obviously, cartoonishly, villainously evil that he can't help but get completely and utterly infuriated. Jesus' rage is justified to us because the very idea of people buying and selling a marketplace inside the temple? We can't imagine such blasphemy. Of course, Jesus was pissed. And, you know, fair cop, there are a lot of good reasons for Jesus to be pissed off here. After all, the, the buying and selling that was going on there wasn't just for fun. They were changing money and buying and selling animals for sacrifice, usually at a fairly exorbitant markup. In those days, as you may or may not know, Animal sacrifices were seen as a necessary component of one's reconciliation to God, something you needed to do in order to have your sins forgiven and for you to get right with the Almighty. So what these people were doing, basically, was selling access to God. And at such a price that the rich could get all the forgiveness they could carry, while those dirty poors wouldn't even make it through the sanctuary doors. 
<laughs> knowing, knowing all that, it makes sense that Jesus would be upset. It makes the scene here in John's gospel all the more believable, too. I mean, after all, Jesus's attack on the temple money changer, it wasn't some knee-jerk response. Jesus made a whip of cords. Have you ever tried to make a whip, like, from scratch? That's not an easy thing. It takes time, determination, and focus. It is at this point where I just love to imagine Jesus grabbing a bunch of leather cords off a nearby shop stall, sitting down on a bench across from the temple, and just braiding furiously, muttering angrily under his breath while the disciples look on with a growing sense of dread and concern. For something to get the Prince of Peace so princely pissed off, that's clearly a capital B big deal. But, but what gets me, though, every time I read this passage, if it's such a big deal, such a glaringly obvious, unmissable, big bad that's going on here, why is Jesus the only one upset? I mean, why aren't there protesters out front? Why aren't the temple leaders debating the ethics about this? Why, heck, why aren't the disciples equally upset about what they're seeing? Why does it seem like Jesus is the only one upset here? The answer, of course, is as simple as it ought to be completely terrifying for us long-term church folks. To everyone else in that time and place, from the disciples to the merchants and background again, that scene in the temple wasn't just some accepted evil. It wasn't some compromise they'd all just agreed to make. It was how church was supposed to work. For the people of the time, the flourishing trade and changing of money was how they measured the success of the temple institution. Trade was a sign of wealth and success, the riches of Solomon reigning again on his descendants, a sign of God's blessing and fortune upon the community. The strength of temple trade was an easy metric by which they could assess the degree to which God had blessed the people, the degree to which the temple was doing well. If trade was up and profits were good, well, it stands to reason that God must be happy and we're doing all the right things. If trade was bad and the profits dipped, well, maybe, maybe we need to do something different. Trading was kaizen for the people. It was just how things were done. For the folks in that moment, the people there with Jesus in the then and there, this day felt as near to perfect as it would be possible for a day to feel. Like those sunlit memories of church I mentioned earlier, the community had come together under clear skies and warm weather in good spirits, ready for some of that very, 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 very old-time religion. The author of the Gospel of John tries to give some sort of retroactive context to Jesus' actions, quoting that whole zeal will consume him bit out of Psalm 69 to try and make it seem like this was something to be anticipated, something 
destined to happen, a zealous response to an abnormal situation. But the truth was that everything about this scene was normal. Everything was as it had always been right up until Jesus came and found it. Found it and looked right through it. He saw it, and he saw it the way that we see fancy Easter dresses, suits and ties, and packed pews come Christmas Eve. He saw it the way we see a bell choir or a brass band and a pancake breakfast with half the town tucking in. He saw it the way we see the local salesman handing out business cards in the back during the passing of the piece, or a local executive lamenting how the company just isn't making enough money these days, even though they still pay their exhausted workforce below poverty rates. The way we see the smiles of church leaders uttering honeyed words of welcome while quietly judging just who among the people they're willing to actually engage with, to actually let in to the real true life of the church. It is in those beatific smiles that don't quite seem to make it all the way into the eyes, that silken tablecloth of love and community resting gently over a cracked and broken table. Of course, we no longer have marketplaces in our temples. As Christians, we're rightfully all a little bit worried about mixing religion and trade like this because that moment where Jesus got that upset is a fundamental part of our shared historical memory. It was such a striking moment for us as a people that it winds up being one of only a handful of moments, a handful of memories that we have of Jesus that wind up in all four Gospels simultaneously. But the lesson here was never about trade practices. Jesus wasn't upset because money changers just happened to be in an otherwise perfectly healthy faith community. Jesus was upset because what he saw there was normal to everyone but him. And when he looked upon that scene, he didn't find a warm and welcoming community. Oh, no. When he looked out, he looked through the eyes of the people gathered there and saw truth. He saw through the eyes of that 12-year-old white kid in the church choir, looking at all the smiling white faces around him, and wondered what had happened to all that great and wonderful diversity that God had so lovingly created. He looked upon that HD memory of children running high speed through the pancake breakfast, and saw instead the young gay child hiding in the corner because his Sunday school teacher just spent the last hour telling him that God hates him. He saw long church meetings about how to hold on tight to the money, Sunday lip services, Bible studies where the Bible's mined for helpful self-justifications, bake sales as a pretext to send our very rich and very white children on fun mission trips to gawk at all the starving brown people, a grand piano purchased as a tax write-off by a businessman who ran his company on starvation wages but still wanted the image of being a good and pious man about the community. Jesus looked and saw what was, while others looked and accepted what had been. And when Jesus saw the truth of what God's people really were, 
what God's people had become. Jesus' first instinct was to mutter angrily and go make himself a weapon. In that moment, Jesus could not have cared less about the institution of the church. Jesus couldn't have cared less because what had taken them 46 years to build. He could do again in three days, half naked, while hanging dead from a tree. <laughs> and I gotta be honest. I gotta be honest. I don't really think that this is the one and only moment in history where Jesus felt this way about the church. When we humans are left to our own devices, we typically find ourselves trying to build divinity out of blasphemy rather than just simply letting God be God. Hunting for these metrics for success rather than listening for the cries of lost sheep. We, we build boxes for God, structures and ways of being that we then insist are the only one true and good way of doing things, defending them as the way that things have always been done, all the while completely unaware that God couldn't care less about how we want to measure our success as churches. God doesn't care about animal sacrifices. God doesn't care about how many likes, shares, or views we have or how many butts we have in the pews. God doesn't care if we even have pews in the first place. God doesn't care how successful our temple market is. God doesn't care how successful our church is. God does not care how many programs we run, how much money we have, or how much money we give. When God sees our banging cymbals and sounding drums, our insistence on doing things just so, and our refusal to do things differently, even if it means that the poor, the immigrant, the different, the lonely, or the otherwise other find no home here, when God sees that, God walks off for a minute muttering in disgust and gets to braiding. Said the beaver to Lucy of that great and terrible lion, of course he isn't, he isn't safe, but he's good. God, my friends, is the origin and source of all that is good all that is true and all that is pure and wonderful. And so many of us have come to this unshakable belief, one that I find myself wrestling with pretty darn constantly. This belief that goodness somehow requires a lack of confrontation. This belief that goodness requires us to unquestioningly follow the ways in which things have always been done. This belief that goodness requires us not to challenge authorities, not to question our leadership, not to seek new ways of doing, of being, or of understanding who and what God is. I think the truth is, though, that goodness, real godly goodness, sometimes requires us to get pissed off. Goodness doesn't require us to be quietly acquiescent to an unacceptable status quo. Goodness doesn't require us to silence our voices when we see ungodly acts perpetrated by those who sit in the seats of power and authority. 
Goodness doesn't require us to turn aside when those who sit in the house built for the Lord speak of profit before principle, of numbers rather than nurturing, asking for labors rather than giving of love. Goodness requires us to look on the world around us and see not what has always been, but what God insists is possible through the application of God's love in practice rather than in theory. Goodness requires us to look at our communities and seek to learn what is needed rather than just seeking how to do what we want to do. Goodness requires us to listen to cries that are unheard, to rebuild bridges that have been burned down, bring healing to the sick, guidance to the lost, and occasionally a lovingly braided whip directly to the tables of those who would turn the household of the Lord into a temple of our own worst natures. Friends, I, I struggle with this one myself. I come from places of social privilege, cultural power, and the strength of status afforded to me because of my gender and sexual identity. I cannot, by definition, speak a universal message to everyone on this issue because as a lifelong Christian with a background like this, my own memories are always going to be warm and fuzzy remembrances of time spent in the temple marketplace. And there will always be a part of me that yearns for that. But for me, for a lot of us, that is our cross to bear. The cross of awareness, the cross of realizing that our happiness came at a price. The cross of sacrificing these warm, wonderful, comforting memories of community and exchanging them for a realization that is shared with our Savior that the house of our Creator cannot, should not, be like this. We privileged folk, we carry the cross of being the ones to tear it all down. But there is hope. Our hope here lies in the secure knowledge that what we have spent our whole lives building up God can and will build back better in just a few days. Those of us who have dedicated our lives to building religious communities that it turns out have been running roughshod over the most vulnerable voices among us, we can still have hope because we worship a Lord who tells us to tear it all down and then helps us to build it up again. If death is no barrier to our Lord, then what's systematic inequality and prejudice? So long as we're all willing to braid a few cords, I can promise you all this. In the end, it'll be no barrier at all. So let's get to braiding then. I want to thank you all for listening again to our Sunday time of scripture and sermon. Um, we got a lot going on here. Things are starting to move with our community here. And if you're still listening to the end, I want to invite you, if you can, to join up with our community a little bit in whatever way you're most comfortable. thing about our community is, is we're not a church that meets in one place on one time. We are an online community. We do our things in a distributed fashion. 
accessible when and how you need to. Most of our fellowship and our community interaction is done through a Discord server, a private, well, semi-private environment where we are all talking to each other pretty constantly through text exchanges and video chat rooms and things of the like. You are welcome to join us. Even if you're a member of another congregation in your own place and time, you can join with us here as well. You are welcome, and we would love to have you. You can check us out on our website, which I've dropped uh, the link to in the description. That gives you the link to our Discord uh, server, as well as our Facebook page and other places where you can get information about what we're doing. Uh, We have a couple other things that are coming off here during the week. On Thursdays uh, is when I do our Psalms from the Trail series, which is where I go out and I explore a fun little ancient hiking trail or path here in the in the Kobe Kansai kind of area, and then read one of the Psalms from that trail. Uh, this week, I think we're going to be doing Psalm 7. We're going in order, so it should be easy to keep track of where we're at. And uh, I think it'll be another fun one. If you're in the Kansai area, by the way, and you want to come with me on one of these hiking and recording sessions, go ahead and drop an email to me. My email is on the website. I'd love for you to come along with. Also, we have on Sundays, we have our scripture sermon readings, uh, which you are now getting to the end of one of. And on Saturdays, this one in particular is interesting, is when we have our time of of conversation with our community, where we get into deep, kind of heartfelt conversation that is sometimes bumpy, sometimes rough, but always well-intentioned within the members of our community over some of the issues that divide us and some of the issues that bind us. Uh, That's at 10.30 p.m. Japan time or 8.30 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday uh, if you're on the East Coast. And I hope that that's something some of you might join us for as well. Lastly and most importantly, I want to end with this thought. And it's the same thought I always try to end on. With so many of you that are in so many different places in the world, so many different places in your lives, so many different situations... It's important for you to know that God is with you, even and especially when it's hard to see. And as you go out into this world, as you go out to face whatever challenges are in front of you this week, I want you to know that my prayers go with you, that you are in my thoughts and that you are in my heart. I will be thinking of you and I'll be praying for you every day. Take care.